Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to a joint CGPP and GAI seminar, which don't happen too often. Uh, it's usually just one or the other. Uh, our guest today is Tom Popinski from the Department of Government at Cornell University. He has a PhD from Yale. He's published across a wide array of subfields, comparative politics, IR, IPE, political methods in particular. Numerous grants and awards from government agencies and private foundations. A book with Cambridge University Press. He's published in a lot of journals that I'm pretty good at getting rejected from. <laughs> Annual Review of Political Science, Comparative Political Studies, World Politics, British Journal of Political Science, World Development, and American Journal of Political Science, amongst many others. He's part of the leadership group, or several leadership groups of various organisations and editorial boards of various journals. And amongst all of that, he still has time to publish his own blog, which is, in my view, one of the better ones in political science, and I encourage you to follow it. Okay. Today he's talking about the origins of ethnic orders, institutional emergence in authoritarian Malaysia. Thanks, Lee, and thanks to everybody for coming. This is my first time to Brisbane, and I've uh, discovered that what you consider winter is what we consider summer in upstate New York, so uh, I've really enjoyed myself. I feel like I'm not missing anything back home. The presentation I'm going to do today is an outline of a research agenda that I hope will consume the next three to five years of my, of my life and brings together a number of different interests that I've had that sort of cross the disciplinary boundaries or subdisciplinary boundaries that, that Lee mentioned. Uh, and I think the best way to introduce it is actually to, to start off with um, sort of a motivation from some of the things I've learned about Malaysia from my time there. So what you have up here is an important or sort of critical part of the Malaysian Constitution, Article 160, which does a peculiar thing. It defines what it means to be Malay, and it defines it in a particular way. So according to Article 160, Malay means a person who professes the religion of Islam, habitually speaks the Malay language, and conforms to Malay custom, and is sort of born somewhere around here, or descended from that sort of person. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One that the Malaysian constitution at all feels the need to define Malay uh, is rather unique in uh, the cross-national experiences here. So the question that, I, that I'll sort of animate my presentation is, first off, why does the Malaysian constitution define what a Malay is? The second thing about this, so the, the idea of defining identities as constitutionally enacted things is, is rather rare cross-nationally. More sort of on the point for my presentation today is the fact that the Malaysian constitution defines Malay in this particular way. And in fact, if you were to think about cross-national experience, if there were ever a place or a country where indigeneity ought to be obvious or where sort of racial descent ought to be uh, considered to be clear, it would be Malaysia. Now, I'm not saying this because I believe in sort of distinct racial categories, but Malaysian political culture assumes that these racial categories of Malay, Chinese, Indian, and other races in Singapore are sort of objective things. And so if there were going to be a context in which it would be easy to say, well, Malay is a racial Malay, it would be possible. So it doesn't do this. Why define, behave, define Malayness via what you believe and how you, what language you use rather than some other more clearly descent-based category? Um, the third question that will emerge out of this, okay, so if I can explain to you why the definition of Malayness would be defined in the Constitution and in this particular way, what are the consequences of this for Malaysian politics? And a sort of a broader question that should uh, uh, interest some of you, even if you don't care one bit about Malaysia, is in reflecting and ruminating on the Malaysian case, what does this tell us about identity more generally? 
the plan for, for today for me is to do the following. First, I want to give us a very, very, very quick overview of the current literature on identity in comparative politics and in social science more generally. I'm going to do this not to sort of exhaustively categorize all the ways that people have thought about identity, but rather to, to, to take what I consider to be the key aspects of, of the current consensus on what identity is in comparative politics. And I want to reinterpret what that literature is saying in light of the Malaysian experience. In doing so, I want to think of a new, and I propose for you, my working definition, and that stresses a working definition, a working conceptualization, where I'm trying to go with a new conceptualization of identity which is not, again, the only one, but the one that I'll work with today, which is to think of ethnicity uh, and identity more generally as an institution. And I'm going to sort of say exactly what I mean and exactly why I think this matters and exactly what uh, an institution is and what an institution is not as part of this. And then I'm going to outline ongoing research in Malaysia and also in Indonesia that tackles sort of three kinds of questions and using three different methodologies and tries to make three different contributions. One is to think about how to use this conceptualization of, of ethnicity to think more about how Malaysians conceive of the social world around them in ways that action can probably be picked up by surveys and experiments, and survey experiments. So that's a sort of more quantitative approach. I'm not going to show you any results, but I'm going to tell you what I plan to do, which will be really useful because you can tell me if you think I'm going to be doing it wrong. A second project is to think about a new way to interpret what Malaysian politics is about. So I'm going to interpret and reinterpret some aspects of the Malaysian political scene uh, which are understood differently. And I think this new conceptualization, which I'm trying to work towards, will give us a new language or a new way to think about them. And then finally, the thing that I'm perhaps mo most excited about this is to think about the origins of what I'm going to call ethnic orders. And I'm going to define what an ethnic order is uh, using my vocabulary just a little bit. But basically, this is going to be a new way to think about how Malaysia got this way. Why is it that Malaysia, this will help us return to the animating questions. Why does Malaysia have Malay in the Constitution? Why does it look the way that it does? Okay. And then I'll return to the four questions that were on this slide here. So let me get right into it then. I should stress, uh, this is preliminary research. It's a work in progress. And so if you have questions as I'm presenting or points of clarification, I welcome them. I, I'd like this to be as much a conversation as it is a sort of delivery of, of information because that information is still provisional here. So let me talk about the state of the art of an identity research. The way that I see it, there's an emerging consensus within political science and uh, social sciences in general around a general constructivist sense of identity and ethnicity in particular. And nothing that I'm going to say is going to be a, a rejection of that. I think that what I'll tell you today would also be labelable as constructivist as well. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to have a criticism about the way this, where this literature has gone. There are two major statements in this, what I would call the constructivist synthesis on identity research in, in the social sciences. One is a, a paper in subsequent edited volume by Rawi Abdullah and four co-authors called Identity as a Variable. And the second is an edited volume uh, by Kanchan Chandra, which is entitled Helpfully Constructivist Theories of Ethnic Politics. These works commonly, and the works that they're trying to draw on and synthesize, they consider identity as a category. And this is fine in a general sense, but it leaves unspecified a category of what. And it's the of what which I think is important for the presentation that I'm going to be giving you here. For example, this literature tends to de-emphasize content as part of the research that is done on ethnicity and identity in general. Now, constructivism is uh, usefully opposed to a primordialist view of identity, of ethnicity, which suggests that identities are uh, actually 
pre-existing things that people sort of possess and can be passed down like biologically from people to one another. And so primordialists, whatever, there are many weaknesses and reasons why that's not in fashion currently, but primordialists used to say things of the type, as a Ukrainian, one must have a relationship to the earth, right? So the things that made you Ukrainian were always specified in terms of the making of a national myth. So the content of what identity was was really big for the primordialist. In, ter in the constructivist synthesis, because we, uh, as constructivists, consider identities to be sort of jointly constituted um, and not real existing things, uh, debate on the content of what identity is uh, tends to fall by the wayside. So the notion that identities have specific contents that people act upon or sort of believe as the defining features of, of their ethnic identity is sort of uh, falls by the wayside here. And so I'd like to reemphasize content. More to the point, perhaps, is this point that I made previously about the category of what. So identity or ethnicity is a category of what sort of general social phenomenon. For Chandra, it's interesting. It's a category of descent, which is, in, in some ways, recreates the primordialist problem, even if you're a strict constructivist, as she is. Abdullah and all don't say what, what identity or ethnicity is a category of at all. In fact, they just say that identity varies. Uh, and it varies along two dimensions, content and contestation. So they say content is, I believe they should, and then do it. Nothing analytically serious with that content at all here. It's an another way of saying it must be true that Malays don't think they're Chinese, but we're not going to talk about what it means for Malays and Chinese to not think they're the same thing. Okay. And I'd also emphasize, and this is very important for me and for the like intellectual history of this project within my own academic development, is that for all of the importance of, of ethnic politics research, uh, on ethnicity, it's oddly silent on politics. So I think that ethnic identities are political constructions. Or I suspect that they're political constructions or that they're created through political processes. And it's possible to take a constructivist view on ethnic identity and talk not at all about politics. And in fact, this is quite common here. And so I'd like to... Uh, the silence on politics, or the odd silence, it's not that nobody thinks that these things are political, but it, again, there's nothing analytically seriously done with that, with that statement that identity is political. I'd like to sort of make this more explicit. So let me return now to the case of Malays. But I'll give you three examples of, uh, of identity in the Malay context, the Malays and Malaysian context. And the first example, I'm going to draw on really, really critical research by Judith Nagat. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this paper which appeared in the American Ethnologists in 1974 called What is a Malay? Um, the subtitle of this piece is Situational Selection of Ethnic Identity in a Plural Society. What Nagata does, or she did, 42 years ago now, is she went to Penang, sort of multi-ethnic city in, uh, in Malaysia, and she tried to pin down what Malays in Penang thought that Malayness meant. And what she discovered is that Malayness varies in its articulation, and people will rapidly and frequently choose different identity labels for themselves depending on the situation. This is a critically important ethnographic work for the anthropological literature on, uh, on identity, which in turn inspired the sociological and political science literature on identity. It's the foundational work for constructivist research. And what she showed was that it's easy to think of examples where an individual will say, well, I'm Arab, but I'm also Malay. Or I'm Jawi Peranakan, which is the sort of mixed Malay and South Asian category, but I'm also Malay. And not only this, they would identify as one or the other based on a specific set of conditions. So, for example, she would show that when people wished to criticize Malays, they would describe themselves as Arab. 
But when they wished to make common cause with the Malays, they would disguise themselves as Malays. So the same person would take one of multiple different identity labels depending on the situation. I find this work, you know, inspirational. It's had wide impact. And yet, I think that there's not enough that's been done with this insight. I'm going to show you that I think we can speak even more systematically about the conditions under which people will choose to identify one way or another. Next example I'll give you is Mahathir Mohamed, Prime Minister of Malaysia. He is perhaps, and like Malay is behind his, his head here, so you can see his head is the A in Malay, the first A in Malay. He is considered by Malaysians to be almost the ultimate Malay. He was, for decades, the leader of the United Malays National Organization, uh, a party named after Malays. He wrote the Malay Dilemma, the, the document in 1970, which sponsored the new economic policy, which really returned Malay, you know, Malay special rights to the forefront of Malaysian politics. And when he entered uh, medical school in Singapore in the 1940s, he was an Indian. Because his, there was a scholarship available uh, for descendants of Indians in, in Malaya, in colonial Malaya at the time, and his father is, is from South India. And so here's a, we have an, a second example of somebody who is considered in modern Malaysian society to be like the ultimate distillation of what a Malay is, and yet this ultimate distillation of what a Malay is can appeal to an Indian scholarship when it so desires. The third example I'll talk about is Datuk so-and-so. So Datuk is an honorific, and so-and-so is the name I don't wish to use in front of us because we're recording today. I'm just going to speak in general terms about a recent conversation I had with an influential Malaysian who told me in the course of a single sentence that he was Malay, that he was Minangkabau, which is an ethnic group from Sumatra, which um, uh, speaks a language which is related to Malay, but is not the same thing at all, and also that he was Portuguese. And the reason why he said these things is because he was highlighting that he was part of a, uh, an organization which campaigned for understanding Malay rights in Malaysia, but also that he and his wife had a history which uh, actually his parents and her parents were not born in Malaysia, and so he was explaining where he was from. He was also talking about this little secret with his, within his family was that he's def- descended ultimately from Portuguese who had been in Malacca in the, uh, in the 1600s or I guess the 1500s. Uh, and it's interesting that this is, there's nothing inconsistent. Like He wasn't lying at one point in time, or he wasn't dissembling at one point in time. He's merely, depending on the situation in which he's trying to describe himself, accessing different types of, uh, of identity categories. So what do, I want to, what do I want to do with all this? Well, this, I'm sure those of you who work on identity or those of you who are sort of you know, aware citizens can think of many different examples in which, uh, of similar phenomena in the other parts of the world. But I'm going to use the Malay case to think about a new vocabulary, which I find helpful for organizing these things, which I think is going to give me some insights over how to think more generally and comparatively about these cases. So this vocabulary is ultimately inspired by, despite the fact that I'm a constructivist, and I have a constructivist view of identity, it's ultimately inspired by rational choice theories of institutions. And this may seem sort of like, how do these two things go together? But I think, well, I'll show you is that we have two different literatures that have, that have sort of different words for thinking about the same sorts of things. And I think that we can profit from integrating these. Okay? So I'm going to, first off, uh, start by defining an institution as follows. An institution is a regularity in behavior that specifies actions in specific recurrent situations. Okay? So I'll say this again. An institution is a regularity in behavior it specifies actions in specific recurrent situations. This is a definition taken from Mark Schotter, or adapted from Mark Schotter, who wrote a 1981 book called Explaining Social Institutions. It's the classic example of an equilibrium institution's approach to things, which says that institutions are, are comprised of nothing but behaviors that are, follow regular patterns. I'm going to take that view. 
I'm going to then take identity to be a subset of institutions that has the following qualities. Identity is a subset of all regularities and behaviors, institutions, that specifies the recognition of shared attributes in specific recurrent situations. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking, there's a broad category of things called institutions, and I'm saying within that category of things that are institutions, identity is an institution that follows this specific recurrent behavior, or this, this, this action, which is the recognition of shared attributes. And then I'm going to go down a little bit further and talk about ethnicity. Ethnic identity, or ethnicity, is a regularity in behavior that specifies the recognition of shared attributes of heritage in specific recurrent situations. And so you can think of this as a, as, a, as a nested definition. So ethnicity is a subset of all identities. Identity is a subset of all institutions. In principle, and I would love to do this in the future, to think about other types of identities that are not ethnic, or to think about the sort of often difficult to establish borders between ethnicity and, say, national identity or racial identity. Um, I'm not going to do that here. I'm, I'm going I'm to focus really on regularity. Ethnicity is a regularity in behavior that specifies the recognition of shared attributes of heritage in specific recurrent situations, and use that to build out a conception of politics that would produce those regularities of behavior. So, what would those? What would that conception of politics be? How is this done? Why is it the case? Well, I need more de- more terms. So, a couple more here. Viewed the way that I'm thinking about it, an ethnic group is nothing more than a collective of individuals who recognize shared attributes of heritage in specific recurrent situations. So this is very constructivist in the sense that that's all that an ethnic group is. It is no no objectively existing thing. It is constituted by the recognition of individuals in specific recurrent situations. But as I'll say a little bit more in a second, this is also, it decenters ethnic groups even more than is usually done in comparative politics in the sense that it would be hard to count, uh, even if you're a constructivist, identifying and counting ethnic group population shares cannot be done in the abstract. It requires a situation to be specified in which to understand how people are going to identify. Uh, an ethnic order, another term which I'm interested in, uh, and which is really sort of the key thing that I want to talk about. An ethnic order is the set of beliefs, practices, and ancillary institutions that organize and sustain ethnic identities. Here, uh, for this terminology, I'm borrowing on work in American politics uh, about what are called racial orders. So Jennifer Hostroud and co-authors have talked about racial orders in U.S. politics. And I'm, you know, I'm not interested here in race explicitly, but I'm going to talk more about, uh, I think, the, the idea of there being an, an, an order of identity or a nationally specific way that institutions create ethnic identities, I think, is important. And then finally, what are these ancillary institutions? And this is the term, the term I'm least comfortable with because I think it's, it's the least reflective of what I'm talking about. Ancillary institutions, for me, are regularities in behavior that provide meaning and structure to situations in which ethnicity may emerge. So ethnic orders and the ancillary institutions within them are critical because they help to explain to individuals what it means to be Malay in a particular situation. These are the things that tell us what the content of identity is and the situations in which this content is activated and the situations in which it's not activated. So I'll describe all these terms in the context of something that actually happened not to me but to my wife in Malaysia in 2004. In Malaysia in 2004, when I was doing my field research there, I guess, I'm sorry, this is 2005, my, my wife volunteered for the Fulbright Commission in Malaysia. And so as, as a volunteer there, uh, she got to know all the people who were employed by this organization, and one of the people who was employed by it was the driver, Matt Yusof, not, not his real name. And Matt Yusof, during the, uh, my wife's period as the volunteer there, decided that he would buy a new car. And when he was going to buy a new car, he, he didn't have the money to do it, so he needed a car loan to gather the funds together. 
And as a Malay, he discovered that he was entitled to a lower interest rate on his car loan. Because in Malaysian law, that's at least in 2005, this was legal, right? So the interest rates for, for personal loans, for purchases of lumpy goods in Malaysia, are mandated by statute to be slightly lower if you're, if you're Malay. Uh, and this was nice because uh, Mount Yusuf couldn't have afforded the car if, it, if, the, if the interest rate was as high as it was going to be for his car loan, but with a lower interest rate, he could. Now, this is interesting because the way that I think about this interaction is that Mat Yusuf became Malay in the situation when he decided that he needed a lower interest car loan. So the thing that makes him Malay here is not his identity, or some objectively existing identity, or his heritage. It is that the state looked at an individual named Mat Yusuf and said, Mat Yusuf, because you are classifiable in this way based on characteristics that are defined in the Constitution, you qualify for a car loan. And prior to his realization of this, he actually didn't know that he was entitled to this until a number, another staff member told him. He had no reason to apply for a car loan as a Malay. Right? That was not a Malay or non-Malay thing to do. You just seek a car loan. However, once he realized that the state was going to recognize him in a differential way based on its perception of what his identity is, he applied for the car loan as a Malay. And this is the thing, this is the way that I'm, uh, I want to think sort of productively about the ways in which policy and politics actually create Malayness. And remember, if identity is no, is no thing except for a behavior in a situation, then Mat Yusuf is only Malay to the extent to which he does Malay recognizing things in particular social situations. That is the only way that he's Malay. So some remarks about this. I like to use very, very narrow examples and talk about very, very big implications for this. One is, again, what I just said. Ethnicity is comprised of individuals in situations. If you define ethnicity this way, in a way which I think is much more clear than the general constructivist synthesis, ethnicity is a category of action in situations. It is something that individuals do in places, and you can see again here the link between this, this view and the sort of rational choice institutionalist vision, literature that I'm, that I'm drawing on. And ethnicity is no other thing, right? So it's not a social category insofar as it is anything beyond individuals mutually recognizing one, one another as following in particular uh, social situations. So point two, it is intersubjective. I've often wondered, since I've started thinking about identity this way, why are some things in the world perceived to be objective things? Some of them are viewed to be subjective things, and why are some things considered to be intersubjective things? So why is ethnicity intersubjective rather than sort of a subjective like a belief or objective like a capital city? So if you think of identity as something that is constituted by what individuals do in situations, then it emerges naturally that identity is intersubjective because it is constituted by the actions of individuals in this, these situations. Moreover, to point three, it is situational rather than objective, specifically because the ethnic order in which one operates specifies different sorts of situations in which one recognizes heritage uh, in one way or another way. And so in the United States, I don't recognize as Latvian American ever, except for when somebody asks me, if I, am I a Latvian American? Because the, which they never do, they ask me if I'm a Polish American. But the, my Latvian heritage ne is never relevant because the American ethnic order never demands that I specify this myself. It continually demands African Americans to, to specify what their racial heritage is, and so it creates that in very specific ways. In Malaysia, the ethnic order is much more specific about the situations in which you identify as Malay or not, and this emerges naturally, I think, from the definition here. 
interesting things for me are the fact that under this identity, under this view, identity can certainly be contested, and individuals retain autonomy because identity is constituted by actions. So you may refuse to recognize me as Latvian American, and I may refuse to recognize myself as Latvian American. We have the autonomy in this definition to do that, and you know you may reject my Latvian Americanness altogether if you if you so desire, which allows this to be a, a definition which is contested. Um, and what's interesting for me is how does it then come to be the case that people across situations, across broad anonymous community, they don't contest these things, right? And so I'll talk about more about this in a second. And then finally, uh, I think this perspective gives me a nice tool for understanding durability and change both uh, of ethnic identities, both in Malaysia, more generally. I'll talk about the Malaysian case here. If um, identity is what I is the thing that I describe, then there are two ways that cha to change identity. One is to convince people that they should not recognize themselves as their particular ethnic category, which is ascribed to them in the situations in which they're demanded to recognize that category. So if you tell Malays in Malaysia, do not apply for car loans as Malays, that is a way to undermine the Malay political project in Malaysia. And I think that's one thing that the opposition does in Malaysia. Is it, it tries to convince Malays that this ethnic category ought not be the category that they identify with, and it sort of works within the system to do this. The second thing that might happen is you might remove the ancillary institutions. The other thing that the opposition in Malaysia does is it tries to remove the car loan provision from Malaysian politics. It says, well, we shouldn't give people special low-interest car loans if they happen to be Malay. And so that's two different ways within this theory that you can think about what it is that the opposition does in Malaysia. So let me then, and I'm, uh, I'm mindful of the time, so I'm going to sort of start uh, implicating and concluding here. Let me just talk fairly quickly in the next five minutes about the ongoing research that I want to pursue as part of this general uh, research agenda here. And I'm doing this, I show you my map of Malaysia, but also the parts of Indonesia, which are useful for me as well. Uh, because it's not, I can't just do this research in Malaysia to understand it. I have to be able to vary the ethnic order as well. Uh, and the fact that Malaysia, that Malays also are found in large parts of Sumatra and also in the Malaysian part of Borneo, the bit on the, on the, the left up there, uh, is, also, is going to be fruitful for my uh, for the things that I do here. So the one question that I'm very interested in is demonstrating to what degree of precision can I characterize what the ethnic order in Malaysia is and Indonesia is, and how much can I push its boundaries. And so the question that I that um, I think summarizes summarizes this most effectively is to ask a Malaysian the following: How would a child of a mixed Javanese Chinese marriage identify on the census? And the answer in Malaysia is going to be Malay. That's my hypothesis. Now, I, I, this hypothesis is not, it's not something I just came up with no, from out of nowhere. I've talked to many Malaysians, and, they, and you know, when you say, ask this question, they say, yeah, probably Malay. Right? In, uh, in Indonesia, I predict there will not be a single answer to this question. People will be confused by the question, or they won't be confused. They understand the question. But the idea that I would ask the question will be sort of odd to them, like, the census doesn't require us to do this, so why are you asking me about it? Moreover, if you make them think of a word, they'll think of some word like Jawachina. They'll say, they'll just say Javanese Chinese, or they'll say, well, what's the father, and then choose it based on that way. Or they'll say, what's the religion, and use that as a guide here. And so what, what that's doing is point number one here, varying the order. So take Malaysia, take the same question asking in Malaysia, where the ethnic order is very precise about these things, you'll get an answer. 
in Indonesia, where the ethnic order is totally imprecise about this specific question, but contains lots of other things, this question will generate a wide variety of answers. And they may be interesting, they may be not be, but the point is it's not going to be some coordination on this sort of thing. So that's varying the order. The other thing that one can do, based on this sort of conceptualization of identity, is variate the situation. So take the same situation, take the same individuals within the same order and vary the situation in which they're making th this claim. So I have this question here, how would Awang bin Musa, the taxi driver, identify in a car loan application? Awang bin Musa is the most um, Malay name that I can think of that is least Arabic. So just about every Malay name except for Awang is ultimately now Arabic in origin. Uh, and if you know Malaysian, like Malaysian society, you can sort of there are names that connote Arabness more and Arabness less. Awang bin Musa is a very standardly Malay name, even though Musa is the Arabic, uh, the Arabic, the Islamic Moses. Um, but Awang bin Musa is but like the least Arabic, Arab-inflected Malay name I can think of. And so what we're doing here is we're saying, how do you think Awang bin Musa, this stereotypically Malay identity, would I, the taxi driver would identify in a loan application? In the loan application... I'm specifying the situation which my understanding of Malaysian politics says people ought to identify in particular ways. And what I can do is I can vary that to say, Awang bin Musa, the taxi driver, Awang bin Musa, for example, uh, the Ustaz, the Islamic religious teacher, identify before giving a sermon. And my, and my hunch here is that not for Awang bin Musa, but if I had Sheikh Husin al-Bakhari, that Sheikh Husin al-Bakhari as a taxi driver will identify as Malay, but as, a, as an ustaz will identify as Arab. And so I, I should be able to, if I'm right, manipulate the situation and the individual within the situation in ways that give me leverage over the structure of Malaysia's order. So what this is going to do is going to demonstrate not, I mean, this won't be surprising to Malaysians, I don't think. But I think, and I mean, I think the borders of this are going to be surprising to Malaysians. For example, I predict that if I ask how would a child of an Arab Tamil marriage identify on the census, the fact that the answer is going to be Malay for large numbers of Malaysians will be surprising to, to many Malaysians. So some of this will be surprising. But basically the point is more of an illustration of what the, what's generative about this, product, this, this way of conceptualizing identity. If I do these things, I should be able to show these other things which wouldn't be able to be showed otherwise. Okay. This also um, though licenses other things I want to do, which are uh, interesting in other ways. So the ongoing research, too, how Malaysian politics works here. Malaysia has a lot of institutions that are, whose meaning is contested and whose meaning is variously interpreted as being about this or about that. And I have theories about what they're actually about. I understand these as uh, what I call auxiliary or ancillary institutions under the, the sort of vocabulary that I gave you before. So Sharia family law in Malaysia does a couple of interesting things. And of course it regulates Sharia or uh, family law among Muslims. But it also creates legal boundaries in Malaysia that don't exist um, in other countries. For example, in Malaysia, if you wish to convert to Islam, that's fine. And you can literally do something in Malay called masuk Malayu, or to become Malay. This is what the Javanese Chinese union is. You should masuk, literally masuk Malayu, or to become Malay. However, Sharia family law makes it illegal to convert from Islam to something else. If you're a non-Muslim in Malaysia, you are not subject to Sharia family law, although one of the parties would like to change that. Um, but other uh, um, non-Muslims non are not subject to Sharia family law, so I am not subject to Sharia family law, which facilitates my purchases of beer at the 7-Eleven. But um, once you enter, once you convert to Islam, 
you are then regulated on leaving Islam here, which is uh, something which I interpret. You know, everybody knows that this is a, this is a fact. I interpret the, this as the state building and maintaining a, be, a boundary for Molinus. That's why um, the not not Islam, but Molinus. That's why the Constitution of Malaysia goes to the effort to state exactly what it means to be Malay, right? And Sharia family law makes a porous boundary in one direction. You can enter, you can masuk Malayu, there is no kuluar dari Malayu. There is no leaving Malay. Uh, that's not, that's, I mean, it's, in principle that's possible, but there's no, there's no socially recognized term for it. The educational system, and UMNO and the party system, so the, this dominant party, the party system, they do lots of, of things as well. But what UMNO does in particular for my theory is it conveys to individuals when they vote in elections that they have to decide what they are before they vote. UMNO is not open to Chinese. The Malaysian Chinese Association is not open to Malays. These are parties that, that, as a condition of entry, you have to specify what your identity is. And so this builds identity into the party system in ways which are much more fundamental than just campaigning on Malay issues. Like, it specifies individuals. They must be a certain thing to do a certain thing. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about what I'm calling the micro-foundations of change here. And I alluded to these pre uh, previously, but I want to get more information from the opposition about how it works on changing beliefs, and so the propriety of thinking that it's okay to identify as Malay in your car loan, uh, and the institutions, how it tries to unbuild the ancillary institutions or the auxiliary institutions that create uh, Malayness in the first place. And so these are, again, two different ways that this can happen, and I think I can speak more concretely about what Malaysian politics is about, is about these two things. Right? So it's producing those two things, or taking them apart. Finally, the ongoing research number three, how Malaysia got this way, or this may be the most contentious, although the last one will be contentious, I think, in Malaysia too. This may be the most contentious thing that I, that I have to say about Malaysian politics. And so I'm writing here in reaction to a common post-colonial literature, which attributes the existence of Malayness, which everybody knows is a constructed identity, because we're all constructivists and people are sophisticated. It attributes the category of Malayness and the existence of Malayness in Malaysian politics today to a, a colonial project. So it's something that not just the British, but largely the, the British did. And they did this by thinking, you know, sort of conceptualizing perhaps in you know, crude 1910, 1910s, 1920s racial terms about Malay as a race and Chinese as a race and Indian as a race, or perhaps in some other ways. But what I think is that that story is too simple and doesn't exactly... Uh, captured the phenomenon which I wish to understand, which is not just why is Malay a category, but why is Malay this category? Why is Malay work this way rather than some other ways? And the sort of post-colonial literature which attributes things to colonialism is less strong on this. So there's a couple observations which I can give. For one, the 1911 census, which is uh, prior to the Second World War, and the 1947 census, which is obviously after the Second World War, are both British-conducted censuses, and they speak in entirely different terms about what Malays do. So the 1911 census is amazingly constructivist. Right? It recognizes explicitly, first, that ethnicity is hard, hard to code in Malaysian politics, and two, and it uses this exact example, that it doesn't matter what you physically are, it's what you believe you are and how you act. So it gives the example of a Tamil child raised by Chinese parents. It instructs census enumerators to count that child as Chinese. Right? This is something which is far more sophisticated than a uh, simplistic British racial hierarchy being projected onto the Malaysian population would otherwise suggest. By and it also says things like, 
all these ethnic groups in Malaysia, which are de- today lumped together and sort of recognize themselves as Malays, you, you're the Minangkabau or the Javanese or the Boyanese or the, uh, the Bugis or the Arabs or the Jawi Peranakan. Uh, it goes on at some length in the 1911 census about how these communities stay distinct. They don't marry each other. This doesn't happen. Um, the 1947 census says, well, you know, after a generation or two, they marry. And this is going to, a Malay identity is emerging here. So what do I think is going on that explains this change between 1911 and 1947? I think it's the Japanese occupation rather than British colonialism, which really changes the terms upon which identity is constructed. What the Japanese occupation did, simplifying, it did a lot of things, but one thing that did in particular was to identify Chinese as a category, and in doing so, create Malays as an other category. The Japanese perceived their war in Malaya as being against Chinese, which it viewed in sort of similar terms to the war that it was fighting in mainland China, and in sort of constructing grievances against Chinese and not having grievances against Malays, actually built this ethnic distinction in ways that maybe the British had wanted to do or maybe individual uh, colonial officials had thought to do, but were never made as clear as had done by the Japanese. And this has implications for things that I'm only beginning to discover right now. For example, after the Second World War, the idea that Malaysia and Indonesia ought to be separate countries was sort of roundly criticized by the people who lived there on the very accurate understanding that Malaysia and Indonesia, that's a pretty artificial border between two countries. And the notion of Malayu Raya, Greater Malaya, or Indonesia Raya, Greater Eastern Islands, um, was considered a desirable political project. And in particular, the, the Communist Party of Indonesia thought this was a good idea. But the Malaysian, the Malay Commun- the Malayan Communist Party was against this. And the reason why I think that this is is because the Malayan Communist Party was almost entirely Chinese in membership and the Communist Party of Indonesia was ent- almost entirely non-Chinese in membership. And so I think this serves as the foundation for why not only Malaysia is the way that it is, but why Malaysia is not today part of Indonesia. It's the communist opposition which only one side was willing to tolerate the other for these reasons which date to the Japanese occupation. So the starkest way I can put this is that the institutionalist view, the, the, what I'm grasping towards, is that colonialism didn't make Malays. Malaysia made Malays. It's the process through which Malaysia gained independence, the mechanisms that came into play after the Second World War and the basis of things that happened during the Second World War, which created Malaysia and created Malays at the same point in time. So back to my motivations, and this is my last overhead here. So the questions and answers that I asked, I'll ask them and answer them. So why does the Malaysian Constitution define Malay? That's where I started off with. Why would this be? Well, for my view... The answer that I would give is that the Malaysian Constitution needs to institutionalize the distributional regime. It has to have Malaysian politics in the post-colonial era is founded on redistribution between two communities, and there needs to be a definition of who gets it and who doesn't. And so it's a consequence of the, uh, of the distributional regime. Why does it define Malayness in this particular way, via behavior and belief rather than dissent? Well, what I just told you is I think that this comes from a history of the Japanese occupation and the communist movements that emerged during the same time and flourished for about a decade afterwards, rather than some sort of British projection on these things. What are the consequences of this definition? Well, so boundaries of identity in Malaysia are weirdly porous. They're porous in one direction, and Malay is an absorbing state. And also think, and I'll talk talk more about this in the Q&A if you like, that the future of Malaysian politics is actually 
no longer going to be about Malays versus non-Malays, but it's about this definition of Islam, which is part of the definition of Malayness. And so it's, the, it's going to be a debate within the Muslim, the Malay community between those who view Islam as the sort of core feature of what it means to be Malay and those who view otherwise. And it's going to create some new cleavages, which are sort of rarely remarked upon. And finally, what does this tell us more about ethnicity more generally? Well, rather than just count ethnicities or identities or ethnic groups in the way that, that much of the research in comparative politics does, for reasons which may be defensible on their own terms, but not for the things that I want to do. Rather than think about objectively existing things, which is the constructivist research is tell, tells us we shouldn't do, we should think more about the institutions that create the identity in particular situations. We should know about what those, those situations are. We should figure out what the content of that is. And we should think about the politics and political economy of those things. So that's all I have for you today. I'm happy to take questions and talk more broadly about these issues. So thanks for coming and listening. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.